Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 through 17, that's the text. And Paul is continuing right along with the theme of the believer's walk this morning. That has been the ongoing theme for some weeks now. It's been the central theme throughout Paul's letter, as a matter of fact, really to the church at Ephesus. Just look there in your Bible if you're open to Ephesians chapter 5, specifically in verses 1 through 21. That's, that's kind of the brick of Scripture that we've been swimming in, the, the pericope of Scripture that we've been swimming in right there. We haven't completed all those verses yet, but that's, that's kind of the thought group right there. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 21. Verses 1 through 7, if you can remember back a few weeks ago, we talked about the fact that we as believers are to walk in love. Christ loved us and he gave himself for us and we are to love others as Christ loved us. We're to walk in love. Verses 8 through 14, we were called to light up the darkness. Paul tells us in verse 8, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. And here's the admonition or the exhortation. We're to walk as children of light. Lastly, our text for this morning, verses 15 through 21, Paul calls us now to walk in wisdom. He says, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. So we as believers then, we're to walk in love, we're to walk in light, and we're to walk in wisdom. Let's turn our attention to our text for this morning, Paul writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 5 through 15 through 17, lest you forgot. Why don't we stand? Paul says this, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. You may be seated. Three points on your outline this morning. Let me give them to you on the front end. Number one, Walking in wisdom requires a heightened sense of spiritual attentiveness. Spiritual attentiveness. Number two, walking in wisdom requires a heightened sense of spiritual urgency. We see attentiveness in verse 15. We see urgency in verse 16. And then in verse 17, walking in wisdom requires a deepened sense of godly submission. Godly submission. Spiritual attentiveness, spiritual urgency, and godly submission. Those are kind of the three themes of the text there this morning as we walk through this text, thinking about the Christian walking wisely. Let me turn your attention back to verse 15 there. Paul says this, Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise. Look carefully, Paul says. Careful how you walk. Mindful how you walk, alert how you walk, attentive to how you walk. Uh, the Greek word, therefore, look, is the Greek word blepo. It's, it's translated probably look in your Bible, but it means to behold or to perceive or to observe or to regard or to consider or to contemplate. Feel kind of the weight of Paul's word now when he says look? It doesn't just mean glance at. He means perceive, observe, regard, consider, contemplate, think about, be careful, is what Paul is saying. Uh, the, the language here has the idea of taking care, taking heed, being aware. In the current context here, it has the idea of spiritual perception, 
Paul says, as you walk, put your spiritual glasses on, so to speak, that you might see clearly, that you might perceive clearly the world in which you live. We would call that a biblical world view. Okay? This world tries to peddle to you a different set of lenses. It comes at you by way of radio. It comes at you by way of printed publication. It comes at you massively by way of digital information. Put on this set of lenses. View the world this way, Christians. This isn't really a sin. We shouldn't really categorize these people this way. You just need to have a different set of lenses on. Paul says, absolutely not. You need to have a biblical worldview. There needs to be a perceptive worldview, one that is informed by the revealed word of God, not on man's emotions, thoughts, wants, wills, or desires. That's what Paul, that's the the gist here. When Paul says, look carefully how you walk, put your biblical lenses on here. The point that Paul's trying to emphasize is that we need to walk as Christians wide-eyed. We need to be walking wide-eyed. We're to look carefully so as not to stumble. And Paul uses often, uh, throughout the book of, the letter of Ephesians here, he uses the, the present imperative here. When you hear me say present imperative, that means whatever Paul's saying to do, he just means keep on doing it and don't stop doing it. That means look and keep on looking. Don't stop looking. Continue looking. Always be looking. That's what Paul wants us to get there. Look carefully and don't stop. Be wide-eyed. Be spiritually perceptive. Just means this isn't a one-and-done action. As believers, we're to make it our habit or our continual practice to keep our eyes alert, to walk the Christian life in a crooked and dark generation. We talked about that last week when we talked about lighting up the darkness. We live in a crooked and, and dark generation, twisted generation. And so therefore, we are to keep our eyes alert that we might walk with great attentiveness. I was thinking about this this week in my study. Consider, consider how a deer walks in the wild. I'm not a hunter, but I think we've all probably seen one. Think about how a deer walks in the wild. They almost seem to have a sense of timidity about them. Their eyes sweep across the landscape, constantly surveying for danger. Their, Their ears are up, and they're attentive to the faintest sound of a potential threat. They walk slowly, at times even standing motionless, each move almost seeming, as much as a deer can, to be calculated. They employ every sensory aid to keep themselves out of harm's way. If not, they end up in your freezer. There's, Amen. Likewise, as Christians, we cannot afford to walk carelessly. We have an enemy that seeks to destroy us. And when we come to grips with that reality, we will walk differently. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 5, verse 8, he says, Be sober-minded. Okay, That's the careful language. Look carefully. Be sober-minded. He says, Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Paul says, Look carefully. It's the word blepo. Jesus uses the exact same word uh, in Matthew chapter 24 when he says this. He says, see to it, same word, see to it that no one leads you astray for many will come in my name saying I am the Christ and they'll lead many astray. But see to it, eyes wide open, see to it that you're not led astray. Paul used the same word blepo. 
He said, see to it again that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Colossians 2.8, see to it, Paul says. And the writer of Hebrews uses the exact same word when he says, take care. It's translated, take care, brothers, lest there be any among you with an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. There's urgency there. Talk a little bit more about that urgency here in just a few minutes. But we're to walk with eyes wide open. How else are we to walk? We're to walk wisely. That's what Paul tells us here. Tells us to walk eyes wide open. Walk carefully. Look carefully. How, Paul? Not as unwise, but as wise. Paul's exhortation in verse 15 is to pay continual attention to how we walk. Why do we need so much spiritual attentiveness? Well, the reason that Paul encourages us to walk carefully or diligently, or the word even there, carefully, can be translated precisely. Walk precisely, almost like on a razor's edge, not wanting to deviate to the right or the left, but staying on the path. Walking precisely, it's because we're in continual danger of walking down the wrong path. Solomon says it this way. He says there's a way. Uh, That way there is the Hebrew word derek. It just means path. There's a way, there's a path that seems right to a man. Finish it for me. But in the end, it leads to destruction. It leads to death. There's a way. There's a path that seems right. We must have our eyes informed biblically. that We would see and walk by the narrow way. Jesus said that, did he not, in Matthew chapter 7? I mean, Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter in it are many. But the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. But for even of us who are sitting here this morning, who have by God's grace found the narrow way, the road is still fraught with danger. Anybody read Pilgrim's Progress? That's a great allegory of the Christian life. Over and over and over again, you're confronted with the reality of which path should Christian walk? Which way should he go? In his conversation with so-and-so, how is he going to respond? How is he going to act? Which path is he going to take? The path of wisdom. Even for those of us who are in Christ, who by God's grace have found the narrow way, the road is still fraught with danger. We have three enemies this side of eternity. Do we not? The world, the flesh, and the devil. And these these enemies are relentlessly bombarding us with fiery missiles to attempt to cause us to doubt God's goodness and his sufficiency. Those enemies are bombarding you daily, seeking to cause you to doubt God's goodness and the sufficiency of his way. The world says this, there is no God. And if there is, you're it. So eat, drink, and be merry. That's the temptation of the world. God doesn't exist, and if he does, you're him. Do what you want. Enjoy life. But what does the flesh say? The flesh says this, this feels so good, therefore, it must be right. We have to be careful with that as Christians, even. What, is, what feels good does not determine what is true and right and upright and righteous and holy. Matter of fact, what is true and right and uprighteous and holy sometimes doesn't feel good. And then the devil says this, did God really say you can't eat of 
the tree? The world says there is no God, and if there is, you're it. The flesh says if it feels good, it must be right. And Satan says, did God really say? You are bombarded. I am bombarded with, with the, the temptation to deviate from the way. The way, capital W, as in the way, the truth, and the life on a daily basis. We must, we must look carefully. We must be diligent, walk precisely. How, Paul? Not as unwise, but as wise. When we as Christians sin and fall into Satan's traps, we do so because we are at least in that moment living as unwise rather than wise. We, we in that moment revert to following the wisdom of our own lives, or of our old lives rather, which is really foolishness. Paul calls us to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. It's Romans 16, 19. Wise people. Let me, let me just encourage you with some application here. You say, okay, what can I do with this? What's, what's one piece of wisdom here? Well, wise people, wise Christians plan their obedience in advance. You ever thought about that? Wise Christians And if you've not done that historically, begin today. Wise Christians plan their obedience in advance. You see, the reason that we oftentimes fail in the moment of sin's temptation is, number one, because we've ceased to walk wide-eyed. We've let our guard down. And we're easy prey when we've let our guard down. I mean, when when, when that 10-point buck is just carelessly walking across the open meadow, I mean, he's a sitting duck or a sitting buck. You see, we've ceased to walk wide-eyed. We're not walking vigilantly. We're not walking perceptively. Another way to think about this is tactically. We stopped walking tactically. Well, when a SWAT officer enters a, an active shooter zone, he walks differently. He walks tactically. Tactically. On guard. But number two, not only we cease to walk wide-eyed, but number two, we plan to fail our obedience in advance. I would submit to you that we would succeed, and I use succeed generally here, that we would succeed in the hour of temptation far more if we would decide how we were going to respond to a particular temptation before it ever comes. Hey, Satan knows your weaknesses. You would do well to know your weaknesses as well. Okay? And know your weaknesses in such a way that you can plan your obedience before you're ever in the moment where you have to decide on the spot. Because I don't know about you, but I don't exercise the greatest discretion in the moment of temptation. But when I've thought about it in advance, I know where I'm going tonight, I know who I'm going to be with, I know what I'm going to be surrounded by, and I want to think in advance, how am I going to respond, how would I, if if I'm asked to, how would I respond, if I'm asked to go, how would I respond, if I'm asked to watch, how would I respond, think about that in advance. And then in the moment of temptation, you have a ready action plan. That's That's what wisdom is. That's what walking wide-eyed looks like. That's what walking perceptively and tactically looks like. You'll learn in chapter 6 when we get there that Satan is a schemer. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 11. He's a schemer. And he would love nothing more than to take you and to take me out of the race. 
that we wouldn't finish the race well, that we wouldn't finish the, the race strong, that we wouldn't fight the good fight. He'd love to knock us out, cause us to be impotent uh, in terms of our influence for God. Consider how you're going to respond to the offer of sin before it ever knocks on your door. Let me say a few things here about the difference between knowledge and wisdom. Because Paul tells us here to walk not as unwise, but as wise. And I think there is a critical distinction that needs, to be take, that needs to take place here between knowledge and wisdom. You see, knowledge and wisdom, they're altogether different. For some, the difference between knowledge and wisdom is the difference between heaven and hell. Here's what I mean by that. Countless individuals have knowledge of God, knowledge of the Bible. But if that knowledge simply stays encapsulated in the mind and it never leads to repentance, if it never leads to new birth, then that individual is none the wiser for the knowledge they possess. Make sense? Major difference between knowledge and wisdom. Paul spoke about these individuals saying this in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7. He says, always learning, that's knowledge, but never, never able to arrive at a knowledge of truth. That's wisdom. Always learning. May know lots about God, may know lots about the Bible. But if that knowledge stays encapsulated in the mind and it never leads us to repentance or never leads us to new birth, then we're none the wiser for having had that knowledge. As a matter of fact, the Bible calls it foolishness. Full of information, but none the wiser. Spurgeon, one of my heroes, once said this. He said, to know is not to be wise. Many men know a great deal and are greater fools for it. There is no fool so great as a fool as a knowing fool. But to know how to have and use knowledge, that is wisdom. To know how to use knowledge, that is wisdom. And friends, let me encourage you here. You don't have to have a PhD in theology to have wisdom. I would submit to you that our youth, many of our youth have wisdom. Uh, I'm thinking back to several weeks ago, uh, a mom posted a, a Facebook picture, a telephone picture of her son taking notes from a Sunday morning. Boy, there was wisdom contained in that little uh, eight, nine, or ten-year-old's notes. You don't have to have a PhD in theology to have wisdom. Having wisdom doesn't mean that you understand all of God's ways. It means that you respond to life in God's ways. Does that make sense? Having wisdom doesn't mean that you understand all of God's ways, but it means that you respond to life in God's ways. The better you know the Bible, the wiser you will become. That's why we always encourage you. you know, if, if, if all you do is pick up your Bible on Sunday mornings and blow a thin uh, you know, layer of dust off of it and bring it in here for 45 or 50 minutes and then take it home and lay it back on the counter and pick it back up next Sunday, there are 167 other hours in the week that the wisdom contained in God's book from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22 is profiting you not. Much time in God's word, finish the sentence, results in much resemblance to God's son. That's wisdom. Paul even said that in 1 Corinthians. He spoke about Jesus as being the wisdom of God. Much time in God's word results in much resemblance to God's son. And that is wisdom. A wise life 
is a life that is growing in conformity to Christ, is growing in Christ-likeness. Not understanding everything, but responding to life in a Christ-like way. That's wisdom. That's wisdom. You can think about it this way. Wisdom is is the skill or the, the art, so to speak, of living under the authority of God with all your life. It's, it's walking one step in front of another each and every day under the authority and submissive to the authority. We'll get there in point number three if we get there. In submission to the Lord. That's, that's wisdom. That's wisdom. Another way to think about wisdom might be this. Walking in daily and humble submission to the revealed truth of God in every area of my life. You see the clear distinction between knowledge and wisdom? It's possible to have a vast bank of knowledge and yet to not have a heart and a mind that is informed by the revealed word of God. And if that is the case, for all the knowledge we possess, the Bible calls us foolish. Foolish. Wisdom is the practical application of God's word to my daily life that is pointed at or aimed at trying to glorify God. That's what a wise life looks like. It's daily applying the word of God to every facet of my life, to my marriage, to my work, to my parenting, to my relationships. Applying the revealed word of God to every facet of my life and walking in line with God's revealed word as it pertains to every facet of my life, every role that I possess in life for the glory of God. That's wisdom. And you say, well, how, how does a Christian grow in wisdom? Uh, I just picked up a Bible and said, we've got to spend time in God's Word. And that is absolutely correct. Wisdom is not transferred via osmosis. Okay? We don't put our Bible under our pillow and, and just absorb it in. We must spend time in God's Word. It takes diligent study. Okay? Like other spiritual disciplines and character qualities, wisdom must be cultivated. In other words, we don't gain godly wisdom by default. We gain godly wisdom by design. It takes intentionality. Let me give you just three simple thoughts here. How do we as Christians grow in wisdom? Well, number one, we need to humbly confess we need it. Right? I mean, we, we, need, to, we need to confess before the Lord, I need your wisdom. A wise Solomon said this in Proverbs chapter 11. He said, when pride comes, then comes disgrace. But with the humble, there is wisdom. Well, we've got to humbly come before God and say, I, I need it. Or maybe more familiar to you would, would be this. Proverbs 3, verses 4 and 7. 4 through 7, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not lean on your own understanding. That's foolishness, right? But in all your ways acknowledge him. That's wisdom. And he'll make your path straight. Be not wise in your own eyes. That's foolishness. But fear the Lord. That's wisdom. And turn away from evil. That's wisdom. You ever thought about Proverbs chapter 3, verses 4 through 7 as being a wisdom versus foolishness text? I think it differentiates between the two very well. So we need to humbly confess that we need it, number one. Number two, we need to just ask God for it. I mean, James tells us that, does he not? If any of you lacks wisdom, co-er party of one, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives it generously without finding reproach, and it'll be given to him. Uh, When it says without... uh, that God gives generously without finding reproach, that means when we come to God and ask Him for wisdom, God won't say, come on now, how many times have I told you? I mean, when are you going to get it through that thick skull of yours? 
That's reproach. That's chiding. No, James tells us when we come to the Lord humbly and we say, God, I need your wisdom, he lavishes it. He gives it in incredible measure. James isn't simply giving us good advice here, by the way. In James 1.5, when he says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives it generously. That's not just good advice. Asking God for wisdom isn't an option for a Christian. This is actually an imperative. It's a divine command. Ask God for wisdom. That's a command, my friend. Not an option. Vance Havner once said this. He said, if you lack knowledge, go to school. If you lack wisdom, get on your knees. If you lack knowledge, go to school. If you lack wisdom, get on your knees. So we need to humbly confess that we need it. We need to ask God for it. It's a divine command in Scripture. And then third here, and this is not by any way, by any means an exhaustive list, but number three here, study the Scriptures. Study the Scriptures, right? Proverbs chapter 2, 1 and the following. My son, if you receive my words the word of God, and treasure up my commandments with you, making your ear attentive. That's walking wisely, attentiveness, ears up, eyes open. Making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it like hidden treasures. Let me pause right there. We seek a lot of things viciously in life. For some, it's a 401k. For others, it's status. For others, it's popularity. We seek a lot of things, stability, comfort, ease. Put your preferred, and I'm not encouraging, but whatever your preferred idol is in there. We seek a lot of things with great tenacity, tenaciously. But do we seek wisdom like this, like silver and like gold? Boy, I tell you what, if someone told me that there were a heap of gold buried in my backyard, you'd see me out there with a shovel and a pitchfork. And you would be too. Because it's treasure. But what Solomon is telling us here in Proverbs is God's wisdom is an even greater treasure. But oh, how we seek after other little trinkets with such tenacity. And we leave the wisdom of God lying in the earth, so to speak, unearthed in his word. It's there for us. It's there for the taking, but it takes work to mine it out. It takes studying the scriptures. Solomon goes on in chapter 2 and he says, For the Lord gives wisdom from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up, love that language, stores up wisdom for the upright. I think about like heaps, mounds of He stores up wisdom for the upright. I think Paul has a particular kind of wisdom here in mind. You know, he says, be be alert, be be careful, have your eyes wide open, be vigilant. Think tactically how you walk, how Paul, not as unwise, but as wise. I think Paul has a particular kind of wisdom in view here. Let Let me help you see what I'm thinking about here. I think there's both a general and a specific wisdom that's included in Paul's exhortation for us to walk in wisdom. Generally speaking, okay, in, in a general sense here, wisdom is just the practical daily living out of all of God's revealed truth in our life. In other words, it's, it's obeying God's word. That's, that's wisdom generally spoken of. But I think there's a specific wisdom 
that Paul has in mind here as well. Three times in the book of Ephesians, in the letter of of Ephesians, Paul uses the word wisdom. And each time that Paul uses the word wisdom, it's always in connection to the mystery. We started out in in our first few chapters talking much more about the mystery of God being revealed. As a matter of fact, that's the theme of our study, the mystery revealed. Now, let me show you what I mean here. Keep your finger there in chapter 5, but turn back for just a moment to Ephesians chapter 1. Look at verses 7 through 9. Here's what I want to show you again, just so you're aware. I want to show you the connection between wisdom and the mystery. And then I'll hopefully connect those two dots for you. Paul writes this in Ephesians 1, 7 through 9. He says, In him, that's in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Okay, when it says, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, you can remember all the way back in our study, I said that those two things, wisdom and insight, aren't referring to God. Those are referring to us. He has lavished wisdom and insight on us. We are the recipients of divine wisdom and insight. And if, I don't know if you caught it in that particular verse there, but that wisdom and that insight is connected to God's mystery, the plan revealed. Okay? Keep tracking with me here. Okay? Look at verses 17 through 19. Still there in chapter 1. Verses 17 through 19. Paul prays, and this is what he prays. He says that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him having the eyes of your hearts enlightened so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his great might. He has given us a spirit of wisdom and revelation, knowledge of him, knowledge of his redemptive plan. We've been redeemed. Our inheritance. Okay, now, turn over to chapter 3. Third and final time, Paul uses the word wisdom prior to our text for this morning. Chapter 3, verses 8 through 10. Paul writes this. He says, To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church, through the living organization of the organism of the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known, he says. And so you say, what does all this mean? Well, to be wise, I think, is integrally related to understanding God's gracious plan of redemption to save men and women in Christ. In other words, wisdom at the end of the day, is to understand and apply the gospel and to be about the mission of propagating the gospel. Wisdom. That is to come in line with God's pre, preordained, ultimate desire for the universe, which he communicates as a mystery, hidden 
for, for a long time, but now revealed. The wise man, the wise woman, understands and has applied the gospel to their lives. And not only have they applied it as in past sense, but they apply it ongoing every day, preaching the gospel to yourself, walking in light of the truth of the gospel, and being involved in gospel ministry to that dark, twisted, crooked generation in which we live. That's wisdom, my friends. To be a wise man or a wise woman means to live in light of God's ultimate and declared intention for the world. Are you doing that? Are you doing your own thing? Are you a part of that program? Or have you created or hopped on board with another program? Number two, walking in wisdom not only requires a heightened sense of attentiveness, but it also requires a heightened sense of spiritual urgency. Let me draw your attention to verse 16. Paul says, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Making the best use of the time. Those who walk wisely, they endeavor to live in light of God's word in in every area of their life. That's that's wisdom, right? Applying God's word to every, every role, every facet of my life. It's to understand and to be a part of God's saving plan for the world to walk in light of the gospel, and to be a part of gospel ministry. But wise people also have a wise attitude in respect to time. Uh, The phrase, making the best use, it's translated from the single Greek word, exagorazo. It simply means to redeem. As a matter of fact, we talked about that word, if you can remember back to uh, earlier chapters, about us being redeemed. We talked about being bought out of the slave market. Exact same word as translated, making the best use here. means to redeem, to buy out, or to buy up, to rescue from loss. Ex agorazo. Making the best use. We're probably familiar with the old idiom, you're just buying time. That's what Paul's saying here. He's talking about buying time. I'll help you understand how that relates here in just a second. But the emphasis that Paul's making here is that we are to redeem or buy up all the time that we have left so that we can employ it in service to the Lord, that we can make the most of every opportunity. That's what it means. It means that I take the time that I have left. Some of us here have less time than others left. We're not guaranteed another moment from now. But it's to take what time we have left and to redeem it to buy it back, so to speak, and employ it in service to the Lord. That is wisdom. A wise man or a wise woman understands time incredibly different because they understand it through the lenses of God's Word. It's interesting to note that when Paul refers to time here, he doesn't use the ordinary uh, term for, for clock time. That's the word chronos, which... Obviously, you hear our word chronology in there. Uh, Paul uses a different word here. He uses the word kairos, which refers to a measured season or an epoch of time. Basically, he's saying your life, uh, the, the span of when it began to the, to the calendar date predetermined in God's wisdom that it would end. That, that period, that season, that epoch of time. That's what Paul is referring to here when he says, make the best use of the time. Now, by natural and practical application, we can say if we're talking about 
the day between our birth and our death, then we also need to be concerned about the moments that fall in between. Absolutely. What Paul is saying here, he's saying, make the best use of your life. In other words, as Piper would say, don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. If you're, if, you're on, if you're on board with some other program, then you're wasting your life. Get on board with God's program for the universe, his redemptive program, as communicated to us in the gospel, the mystery revealed. Don't waste your life. Be about the things that God is about. Be about the things that please the Lord. Be about God's plan, his will, his desires. Get in line with that. That's what a a life that is not wasted looks like. Paul says, make the very best use of your time. Don't waste your life. Don't waste your life. Each one of us has a fixed season. Our days are numbered. We've been called to make the very most of every moment and opportunity for the glory of God. That changes the way we even think about leisure time, does it not? Now, can, can we have leisure time? Absolutely. Can we go on vacation? Absolutely. Can we do things that, that we enjoy and that refuel us? Absolutely. That doesn't mean that we're wasting our lives. But some people are living for a totally different agenda than God's agenda. And that is a tragically wasted life. Let me encourage you here, if you don't already, to view time as a stewardship rather than an ownership. View time in terms of stewardship rather than ownership. You see, in that sense, we're all living on borrowed time, are we not? Okay. I don't own it. My life is not my own. I've been bought with a price. Therefore, I'm to glorify God with my body. 1 Corinthians 6. I don't own me. Okay? I'm owned. He is king. I am subject. He's creator. I'm creation. creation. He's master. I'm subject. He owns me. When he says jump, I say how high. And so all of my time, then, has is, is been entrusted to me. It's a stewardship. I don't own it. It's borrowed. It's borrowed. He's the owner of it. You see, that, that perspective should cause us to, be want, to, be, to want to be a more faithful steward of our time today than we were yesterday. We need to evaluate on those terms. Am I being a good steward of my moments? Am I being a good steward of my days? Am I being a good steward of my months, my years, my life? Because he owns it. And not only does he own it, but he's told me how to use it. Maybe better said, how to invest it. Each of our moments ultimately belongs to God. Again, that doesn't mean you can't enjoy leisure time. It doesn't mean you can't take a vacation. It doesn't mean you can't rest and refuel and relax. But it does mean that you cannot and I cannot waste time. It means that we can't squander that which God has entrusted to us. Richard Baxter, probably one of my favorite Puritans, and I I would, of all the Puritans, probably the most readable of of the Puritans, would encourage you to to read him, very helpful. Read discerningly like you read everything else. But Baxter said this. He said, spend your time as you would want to hear about it in judgment. Spend your time as you would want to hear about it in judgment. That's a sobering statement. You see, there's coming a day where we as Christians will stand before God and every minute of our lives will be exposed to God's righteous judgment. Now, secure in Christ, we absolutely are. We fear no condemnation in Christ on that day. But the reality of that day and its certainty does underscore the importance 
of our faithfulness to the stewardship of time that God has given us. Am I right? Yes. You see, our days are numbered. Why should we make the very best use of our time? Well, because our days are numbered. David prayed in Psalm 90 and he said, Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Boy, that's interesting that wisdom again applies. Teach us to number our days so that we may gain a heart of wisdom. When I know my days are numbered, when I know there's a a definitive beginning and and a definitive end, I will live differently in between. That's wisdom. Applying God's word to everything he's given me between date of birth and date of death. Every day we're alive is to be spent preparing to cross eternity's timeless threshold. You see, God's fixed a day unknown to us, thank God, when our time to prepare for eternity will come to a close. And since we don't know when that day is, and it could be any day, we should use our time wisely. You know, James reminds us, a familiar text to many of you, James chapter 4. He says, come on, you who say, today or tomorrow, we'll go into such and such a town and we'll spend a year there and trade and make a profit. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? James asks. And then he answers his own question. He says, your life is but a mist or but a vapor that appears for a moment and then quickly vanishes. The brevity of life ought to change the way that we invest our moments. The relative shortness of life ought to change the way that we spend our moments. You see, the more scarce something is, the more valuable it is, right? The more scarce something is, the more valuable it is. Gold and diamonds would be absolutely worthless if you could pick them up like pebbles on the side of the road. Time wouldn't be so precious if we never died, but we do. Therefore, time is precious, You see, but since we're uh, never more than just a breath away from eternity, the way that we use our time has eternal significance. There's an urgency. Not only do we need to be attentive, wise Christians in the way that we walk, but we need to view time differently. We need to view time wisely. What are you going to do with the time you have left? You see, the the worst thing in life isn't, isn't possessions, flying, fluttering away. It's not people flying, fluttering away from your life. It's time flying, fluttering away from your life. I've preached a lot of funerals, and I've walked through a lot of cemeteries. And yet, as I look at an individual's headstone, I'm always reminded of the importance of time. You see, two dates appear on that headstone, the day of birth and the day of death. But more important than those two dates is the dash that separates them. Because that dash reminds us, is representative of the life. And I I wonder to myself, as I see that dash oftentimes walking through cemeteries, what did that person live for? What did they give their life to? Will what they lived for last? Or is what they spent their life building going to go up in smoke because it was composed of wood, hay, and straw? Would reference your attention back to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Verses 12 through 15. Paul says, if you build on a foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, or straw, there's going to come a day where it's all going to be revealed. And if what you've built with are those combustible items, wood, hay, and straw, 
Yes, a converted believer will enter the kingdom and there will be no condemnation because Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. There's no condemnation. But we won't have much to show for our labors. Here's a good question to ask yourself and I'll close here this morning. We'll pick back up point number three next week. A good question to ask yourself and myself. Does what I'm giving my life to, in other words, is how I spend my time, does it have eternal value? C.T. Studd, missionary to China, gave his life away ministering on the mission field in China. I think last week I mentioned one of his uh, quotes that stuck with me from the man that discipled me for many years as a young believer. He said, Uh, some men die by shrapnel, some men die by flames, most men die inch by inch playing life's silly little games. That's C.T. Studd. C.T. Studd also wrote a poem that you probably know at least two lines to. There's, uh, there's, I don't know, maybe five or six verses to the the poem, but but you know the final two verses, or the final two lines of of each verse there. The, the, The poem that he penned is entitled, Only One Life. This is what he said. Let me just read you a couple lines of it, and then we'll close. Give me, Father, a purpose deep. Enjoy your sorrow, thy word to keep. That's wisdom. Faithful and true, whatever the strife, pleasing thee in my daily life. That's wisdom. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Oh, let my love with fervor burn, and from the world now let me turn. That's wisdom. Living for thee and thee alone, Bring thee pleasure on thy throne. That's wisdom. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. How are you spending your time? Better yet, how are you investing it? And are you investing it in a way that is in line with God's agenda, his ultimate agenda for the universe? Or are you living a life wasted? If you're here this morning and you're living a life wasted, let me encourage you. Maybe it means that you need to come to Christ. Maybe it means that you need to be born again for the first time. But if you're here this morning and you know Christ savingly and you say, gosh, I've been tossing it at everything but God's aim and his desire, his intention for me, as revealed in his word, you can't recover what's lost, so don't fret about it, but you can redeem what's left.